Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. So that's a, a somewhat old video of my kids that I put together just because just, it's got this poignant question, right? Like, what do you want to be? Like, what, what, what's the future hold for you? She's wrestling already. And the fun part is now we get to go back and, and wrestle. We, we spoke about this the other day and I said, well, does that still work? And she's like, no, I, I don't know I want to be famous anymore. That seems like really hard work. And, and our lives, maybe I spent asking this question, maybe what do we want to be? Maybe just simply what do I want? We're in this series where we're talking about emotions and we'll get to that in a second. Let me just make sure for those of you who weren't here last week, we're up to speed. We're in this series on the church calendar that we would call Lent through to Easter. It's this idea that God is for us, that Jesus came into this world to to rescue us, to do something specific for us. Now we don't go like full send on Lent. Uh, we, we sang a song with a thousand hallelujahs in it. So let me just say, we protect you from some of the, that we, I've got some friends who pastor a church down the road and, and I was chatting to them the other day and they said, you know, we fast the word hallelujah for like the, the season of Lent. I'm like, well, we're just gonna take all your hallelujahs and we'll use all of them because we're gonna sing a thousand hallelujahs. And, and now when I do that, usually Aaron takes that as this moment where he's now gonna put together this really melancholy, feely set next week. And just to warn you, that's probably coming. Lent is the season where we generally think more about the, the, the more difficult things. And that's helpful for me because I tend to be upbeat almost all the time. And so for me, just being me, you wouldn't get much of that. This calendar sort of protects you from that. And we make this movement through Easter, this celebration of resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, all the way through to Pentecost, where we celebrate the idea that if you are a follower of Jesus, the promise is that God's Spirit dwells within you, that this is a new thing and you get to partner with Him in the world around you. And so we pick the season to talk about some emotions. And emotions, anytime you start to unpack them, this could be a hard conversation. Uh, some of us would say, I, I don't want to do that. Some of you have already said to me, if I did that, my wife wouldn't know me anymore. It's probably not a good idea to open that Pandora's box sort of 30, 40 years into a marriage. But the truth is like, we, we tend to go one of two ways. We tend to either just not talk about them at all, or maybe we talk about them a little bit too much. One of the things that helped me understand this a little bit was, was the idea of family road trips. And I picked the great bluey cartoon. There's a lot of cartoon in here today. I don't have a reason for that. Some of you could probably find a reason, but, but you think about going on a road trip with your kids. It's chaos, it's, it's noisy, there's some fun to it. The truth is when you go on that kind of trip, there's two things you can't do. You can't just shove your kids in the trunk of the car. You can't do it. So some of you are like, there's one parent in every family that's like, you're the one that would put them in the, the trunk of the car. You also can't let them drive the car. Like you, you can't have them in charge. And there's probably one parent that's like, you're the one that would let them drive. And you can figure out who is who. There's those two tendencies. Emotions can't drive everything about your life. They can't control everything. But if you just shut them in a trunk, uh, you're kind of missing some of the purpose. I think we tend to talk about emotions as good versus bad. Maybe better language is, is this. Maybe easy and difficult emotions. There's some emotions that are really easy to feel. Happiness, 
is really easy to feel. And yet we handed out an emotions wheel last week and talked about this, all this big spectrum of 72 different emotions and, and a chunk of them, right, are negative or difficult. Chunk of them aren't easy to feel necessarily. And yet, why is this important work? A couple of things on a practical level. This is John Gottman from the, one of the big marriage institutes in America. Emotionally intelligent husbands are key to a lasting marriage. So if you're a guy here who's married or would like to be married and you're saying, I don't want to do emotional work, the truth is you being emotionally healthy is one of the biggest predictors as to whether you'll have a healthy marriage. That's a big deal, right? Secondly, there's this idea that following Jesus, some of us, we treat that as just about thinking or thoughts. We have information about God. And and yet I would suggest this, feelings bring new data that is missing when only thoughts are trusted. Genuinely meeting God in love, not simply in thoughts, will therefore always be deeply growth-producing. Somewhere my hope for us as individuals in a community is we don't just have information that says God loves us, but there's somewhere where that drops from just a cerebral thing into some of the feelings, into some of the emotional core. Does that mean you always have to feel that way? It doesn't. But does it mean that actually sometimes you should and you should have this awareness that God loves you, that he likes you? That's an important thing. And then the truth is, just from the beginning, it seems that God thinks emotions are important. From the early Hebrew tradition on, the story of the first family, this Adam, these Adam and Eve characters I'm going to introduce you to if you're unfamiliar with them, they were understood as fundamentally about emotions and emotional suffering as central to God's oracle to the first couple. What does that mean? That could probably use a little bit of unpacking. The truth is we were made with emotion, but the fall introduces emotional suffering. From the beginning, there is emotion in this Genesis story that will unpack. God creates and he is happy in his creation. He says it is good. He enjoys it. There is emotion there. It seems that for the first couple, there is emotional tranquility for the most part. To start with, there are good emotions. And yet this fall creates this idea of emotional suffering. Everything changes in that moment. So for this emotion today, we're going to track back to this story. This, not the first story of the first human couple, maybe the second story, the first different story. We're told quite simply, God makes Adam and Eve. Now, some of you in the room would say, I'm very much an evolutionist. We're just going to leave you with that for a second. Some of you would say, I'm very much a six-day creationist. And, and some of you would say, I don't know what either of those two things are. And that's fine as well. We're just going to start with the story as we're given it within the text. And we're told in Genesis chapter three, if you have a text that this is what happened. Now the serpent, again, no information about who the serpent is, no information about where he came from, no information about the origin of evil in the universe, just simply a garden with Adam and Eve and a new character enters. Everything is good in the garden, the serpent character enters. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This is the story we are presented with in Genesis chapter three. A man and a woman occupy this garden. It is good. This character comes in who convinces them to make a decision that will lead to a story that is not good. What, what happens? What, my question would be this. What emotion is here? What causes them to make this decision? Yes, the answer might be, like we, we know maybe our Bible history, maybe it's just our word is temptation, but, but okay, but what emotion caused that temptation? Why make this decision? What is the motivation, if that's important, for this decision? So let's go back a little bit further. We started in Genesis chapter three. Let's go back to Genesis chapter two and see if that helps us at all. So in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, we're told, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Verse eight and nine, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And this is just an important little thing for next week. Adam and Eve and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The story we read in Genesis chapter three will cause shame, but right now shame is not an emotion that they feel. And next week, Kevin Butcher will come and he'll teach us on shame. It's gonna be fantastic. He was a pastor in Detroit for many years and has, has written a ton on this. So I'm really excited to hear what he shares with us. But right now, before all of this, their story is they don't feel shame. There is no emotional suffering at this point. What causes them? What does this serpent character do to move them from a story that is good to a story that will be bad? How does he play on their emotions to say, no, no, we're gonna, we're gonna move you into this new story? I would suggest the central emotion of this story is discontent. They believe that God is holding out on them. They have one story that is good, and this serpent them, convinces them there is another story that is even better. If you make this decision, if you do this thing, the new story will be even better than the current story. And, and the interesting part perhaps is this, it says that they will die and yet when they do it, they don't die. Initially, it seems that the serpent is the one that has told the truth. He said that you won't die and they don't, but they do begin to die, something has happened that has fundamentally changed the story that they will live. And a J James, a New Testament writer will say this, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Somewhere, this decision changes fundamentally their story. It was a good story and now it is a bad story. It was a story with no shame and it's now a story with shame. And all of that centers around discontent. And again, so another question, why? 
How does this character that come in convince them that the story will be better if they follow his narrative or his idea of what comes next? What causes the discontent? What causes it? Let's go back a little bit further. We did Genesis chapter three. We did Genesis chapter two. Now let's go back to Genesis one. Genesis chapter one gives us maybe what you might call the initial story, like the first story. Who are you and I made to be? So let's go back and look at that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. This writer isn't concerned by the fact that God might make a world that was broken and needed fixing. He just says that's what happened. That's no more problematic to him than God creating a world in six days when he could have done it like that. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We skip down to verse 11 and see how this creation shapes. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. God doesn't just make trees and then make another tree and then make another tree. He makes trees that make other trees trees. He makes a creation that's continually producing. There's a couple of words there that become important. There's this word dasha, which means to sprout, bring forth and produce. You guys experience this or will experience it in a couple of weeks. You know when you go to the cracks in your driveway and things are growing out of them? That isn't because you planted something there, unless you're doing gardening completely wrong. There is some life in creation that just springs out and continues to produce. This word zera, seed or offspring, trees that produce other trees through their seeds, it's almost the same language as children. This creation that God makes is vibrant and continuing and growing. It doesn't just stay as it is. Maybe some of you guys that have been in church for a long time, if you've heard words like Eden is perfect, the answer is, well, yes, depending on what you mean by perfect. If by perfect you mean it was this place that was just supposed to stay exactly as it was forever and ever, then no. Genesis, this writer does not understand that kind of perfect. He understands a kind of perfect that is growing and expanding. It's perfect in its intent or its origin, but it doesn't just stay there static and, and like it was for all time. It has this purpose laced into it. There is dasha, there is zera, there are these words that are expanding and there are growing and all this is important because now you and I get introduced into the story, at least in terms of our forefathers or our first couple. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, and it was so. God speaks, and it happens. He is creative, and he puts creativity into his creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So the word here that's important is this word selem, which is just simply meaning to resemble something, not physically. We don't physically resemble this creator, but somewhere we are like him. Somewhere in our creativity, in our way of doing things, we operate like he does. And doesn't that speak to some of the difference that you see between us and other parts of creation? A bird doesn't wake up one morning and say, do you know, 
I'm just a little unhappy with how my curtains match my bed sheets and how that blends with the carpet and all of those different things. So I think I'll just redecorate the whole thing. To a bird, a nest is functional. It has a purpose. To us, it's a, it's a, it's a way of endless creativity, of creating new options, of bringing out colour palettes that ladies understand and guys don't. We'll get to that another week because that's an important way of thinking about emotion. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground, so they may rule. Now, rulership is added into this. And then be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. If you're someone who loves hunting, I'm giving you an apology for hunting right now, it seems, because somewhere you're supposed to rule over this world, according to this writer in Genesis. There's different words that come in here, this word radar, which means to tread down, to, to give it some shape. You, as a person in creation, are made to help shape it, it seems. That was your original purpose. And then this word, this beautiful word, kabash, which means to subdue. This is like the verb that someone who is a radar, a ruler, would act upon. It reminds me, do any of you guys play that whack-a-mole game uh, where you go to the arcade and these things, they jump up and you have a hammer and you have to keep hitting them. And it seems that's what you and I are made to do in creation to a certain degree. We're supposed to keep it in control. The things that grow, the cracks that grow, you have to take care of them. The, the, the plants that grow up when they're not supposed to. Somewhere you are made to deal with that thing. You are made to have a role in that. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. I would suggest, and I think there's lots of other writers that would suggest, that our role is to be involved with God and his creation. This is what Philip Hefner says. We are created by God to be co-creators in the creation that God has purposefully brought into being. We are made to be co-creators. That's our original story. We are co-creators. Creators. So think about what that means when you get a little bit further along. Somewhere God has made a world and he has made this world and it is, bro it is chaotic is the word that is used. And then he plants this garden that isn't chaotic. He plants this garden that, that meets all of his standards, that is as he would shape the world. And he puts people in it like you and I, and he says, now grow this thing. This thing is infused with life. It will continue to grow, but shape it, form it, help it go in the right direction. You might say that discontent is embedded in the story. I said that discontent was what caused Adam and Eve to make this decision that changed everything for everyone. But, but somewhere, if we believe Eden is supposed to grow and supposed to be shaped by people like you and I, discontent is supposed to be there. Think about that moment that maybe you've had, I have my, two, my 0.25 acres, my little Highlands Ranch plot, and I have these moments where it starts to get dark and I'm out there working and I'm like, I just... I just wish it would stay light for another hour. I have so much that I want to do. I, I, I want to do all of these different things to make it as I've imagined it. And somewhere that pictures or mirrors their story. They were made to shape 
the creation God had infused with life. They were co-creators. And maybe that tells us something about where the story is going. I have this suspicion that for many of us, if we're honest, even if we've sat in church for many years, when people mention heaven, secretly there's this thing inside us that's like, sounds kind of boring. I, I, I don't actually know if I want to go there. I, I was told heaven was an endless worship service. And there was part of me that was like, I, I, what? Is that it? Because every one of us have had these moments where we stand singing songs and we've been sat standing for 20 minutes and Aaron has this beautiful, delightful voice and yet we're like, I'm ready to do something different. I can't just keep singing forever. And I always pictured this, this idea that it was just this endless worship service. And then I read Genesis and I was like, wait, work was there in the beginning. Involvement in the story and shaping it was there from the beginning. I was made to co-create with God. And that's got some different elements than just singing. Now, I'm not saying that there won't be lots of singing in heaven. It seems to be in the text. It seems to be this idea that we will sing praises to God. And yet there seems to be still this sense that we will be involved in something that is bigger than just singing songs. If that's your picture of heaven, maybe there is an element in your honest moment. You're like, I don't know if I want to do that or don't know if that feels like, like, like what heaven is or what God has planned. It seems like we've lost some picture of just where the story is going. Discontent is embedded into the story. It was supposed to guide their stewardship of the earth as we partner with God in more creativity. You are creative because your creator is creative. When you are creating, you are partnering with Him. When you operate in this world, you are stewarding with Him. And yet, even in the midst of that good story, that exciting story, somehow this character comes in, this serpent, and is able to sow some sense of, some sense of different discontent. Yes, there was discontent. This should be growing. This needs to expand. God has more work to do and we get to partner with him. And now this serpent comes in and he brings in a different narrative, a different kind of discontent. You will not certainly die if you eat this fruit, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Somewhere this serpent's idea is that there might be a better story. Maybe God is holding out on you. Right now, as a co-creator, he's still the centerpiece of the story. But what if you were the center of the story? What if it was about you? What if you were like him? What, what if you were God? The serpent's discontent is, about, is not about the story. It's about their role in the story. It suggests that there, there may be something else for them. The cause of this new discontent is the serpent's idea that there might be a more advantageous story. What if there could be more? What if I could have everything I ever wanted? What if there's something else. The writer of this book, Ecclesiastes, this mysterious book that has no known author, says this, and I saw that all toil and achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. This writer suggests that each one of us is chasing after something or has the temptation at least to chase after something, believing it will give us everything 
we ever wanted. The indie band MGMT talk about this in their song, uh, Time to Pretend. I'm feeling rough, I'm feeling raw, I'm in the prime of my life. Let's make some music, make some money, find some models for wives. The models will have children, we'll get a divorce, we'll find some more models. Everything must run its course. It's this picture of just, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And I am the centre of this story. I am always looking for the next thing. It is a picture of this almost eternal state of discontent that we can land in as human beings. It seems the serpent's first story, his first lie was, there may be more for you, there may be a better story. And perhaps for us, the constant idea is, there might be a better story. There might be something different. What if you could have everything you ever wanted? It's a question that I think is raised by another wonderful cartoon. These guys, the very great Wiley Coyote. I'm going to fix my lace because it's bugging me. I'm sure it's bugging some of you. Well, now, if it wasn't before. The very great Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. What happens in Roadrunner? Uh, he's constantly chased by this coyote. Now, you may or may not know this, but this cartoon comes with some rules. The guy that created it created a set of rules to help all of the writers shape the cartoon. Uh, the one rule is that the Roadrunner cannot hurt the coyote except by saying beep, beep. Like that's his only thing that he can do. There is no dialogue other than beep, beep, and Roadrunner has to stay on the road uh, because if he's not, on the road, then he's a roadrunner. It's a whole philosophical problem if you go down that avenue. You're like, you're just, ah, I don't know what to do with the world anymore. So these guys have this back and forth battle, the coyote constantly chasing the roadrunner, constantly wanting to catch him, to, as we're left to imagine, to eat him or something like that. What are the possibilities for coyote, for coyote in his state of discontent? The possibility, right, number one is this. He doesn't catch Roadrunner. Possibilities he doesn't catch Roadrunner. Never gets the thing he believes is going to make his life what he wants it to be. It's, it's going to give him everything he wants and he doesn't get it. So he just keeps going and going and going until he possibly forgets why he even began. The, the writer George Santayana said this, fanaticism consists in redoubling your efforts even when you've forgotten your aim and you're sometimes left wondering, is that where Coyote is? He's just, he's believed he wants Roadrunner for so long. He just keeps on going. What if he never catches him? Well, then he's never fulfilled. He's never happy but there's an equally pressing problem. What if he does catch him? What if he does catch Roadrunner? Where does the story go then? Because he's believed that catching this bird will give him everything he wants and then he does. What happens next? Fortunately, because of how much content there is in the world, we don't even have to wonder about this. The very brilliant people at Family Guy actually created a scenario where Wiley catches Roadrunner. He does the thing where he has a rock, a boulder set up to land on the road and Roadrunner runs through and this time he pulls the cord and instead of Roadrunner sneaking through and the, the boulder somehow in some weird way landing on Wiley Coyote, it hits Roadrunner. He squashed that pesky bird. He takes him home back to the female version of Wiley Coyote and they sit together and they eat Roadrunner and he's got everything he ever wanted. It's like joy, like they celebrate, they have a big party and, and he's so happy. And then someone asks him a question. They say, what are you going to do now? And he looks at the camera and he's like, I, I don't know. 
I didn't really go to school, to be honest. Like I, I've been chasing this bird as long as I can remember. I don't have another purpose. There's nothing else I'm interested in. This has consumed night and day for me. I've constantly gone back after this. But even when disaster has fallen, even when cliffs have mysteriously disappeared from under my feet, even when boulders that are supposed to land on a bird have landed on me, I have still gone back time and time again looking for this thing that I believe will bring me happiness. And now I've got it. And so in in this episode, he ends up sitting watching daytime TV, drinking tequila. He ends up flipping burgers in Wendy's, just trying to find something that brings him life. And he ends up really depressed. He's actually just like, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. He is a picture of Ecclesiastes. What happens when you think this thing will bring you what you want and it doesn't? He's a picture of Genesis. What happens when you think this thing will give you what you want and it doesn't? It's the oldest trick in the book. And if we're honest, it's one we fall for time and time again. We'll get onto more difficult emotions like anger and shame and fear But the truth is, for so many of us, this is where we live in a chunk of our time. Discontent. If only I could have this thing. Where does discontent take you? Where does that roadrunner scenario take you? It seems that somewhere we go a couple of different ways. The writer of Ecclesiastes goes on to say, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. That doesn't seem in his mind, just doing nothing isn't the answer. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. His recommendation is this one handful. It is this picture of learning to be content. It's language that Paul, the New Testament writer, will use when he says, I've learned to be content in everything. But so many, much of the time, don't you and I, don't we land in that second part, two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind? I think the guys that wrote that song, MGMT, they they would get that two hands chasing after the wind. They would get, I'm always looking for something else. And we see this in our language about so many different things. We see this in our language about money. You you may have heard the, the line, what's a rich person's favorite million? And the answer is the next one. It's the next one. It's the one that I don't have yet. The oligarch or the the octogenarian from The Simpsons, Mr. Burns, he has millions and millions of dollars in one episode. I told you there was a lot of cartoon today. I have no explanation for it whatsoever. It's simply chance. But there's this moment where, where Homer Simpson says to him, Mr. Burns, you're so rich, the richest person I know, way richer than anybody else. And Mr. Burns looks at him and says so poignantly, yep, it's true. I am rich, but I'd give it all up for a little more. I'd give it all up for a little more, like I'd surrender it. So long as more comes back the other way, we see that with with wealth. And, And the truth is, I said a rich person's favorite million, but that wealth question isn't about rich versus poor. That's every single one of us. If I just had this, I would be content. That would be enough. And yet, just like Wiley Coyote, we get the thing and there's another thing. How about in relationships? Now, we have at South, I love the fact we have people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And so people have been through loads of different relational, relational struggles. And I don't want anyone to feel guilty about a, a past relationship, but think about into the future. 
one of the things that people say causes people to have affairs is this. They have a partner, a spouse with 90% of what they long for in a relationship. And then they meet somebody else. And that person has the 10% that the other person doesn't have. It's not that they have everything. It's not that it's just the complete person. But that 10% is so intriguing. And the question becomes, well, what if I was with that person? Wouldn't that give me everything that I wanted? No one stops to question whether just having 10% or even 25% will really be satisfactory. But just like chasing Roadrunner, there is the idea that, oh, if only that was the case, if only that was the scenario, if only that was the story. And again, behind it, whether it's money, it's sex or power, the suspicion is, I think God, the universe, whoever, I think they're holding out on me. There's a better story for me. If only I could have that next thing. Interestingly, Jesus asks this super poignant question to two of his future disciples that I think maybe helps us navigate some of this a little bit. This is John chapter 1, verse 36. The next day, John was there again. This is John the Baptist with two of his disciples. When they saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What do you want? On the surface, maybe the question is just simply like, what do you want? You, do you want to follow me or something like that? But, but, but thinking about that, that question like in all different circumstances, it, it just can get very profound. Taps back into me asking my daughter at five years old, what do you want to be? And her starting to create this potential future for herself. And I would suggest that for you and I, when we land in those moments of discontent, when we land in those moments where we're like, I believe there might be a better story. I believe that someone is holding out on me. Maybe the question we get to ask ourselves is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. What do you want? What do you want? Because I would suggest the thing that we really want, deep down in the core of ourselves, is that first thing that Adam and Eve had. I think you and I are made to be co-creators with God. And I think somewhere the story we've been given is this. You were born bad. And Jesus came and he saved you from your badness. And that's not the full story, is it? Because the heartbreaking story is you were born great or you were made to be great. That's always the truth like that. When you look at literature, that's always the tragedy of different characters. The tragedy of Macbeth that we talked about the other week isn't that he was bad, it's that he could have been great. And the tragedy of humanity is that we were made to be great, made to be co-creators, made to partner with God in this world. And the story we've been told is, no, you were born bad and Jesus saved you from your badness. And that actually is part of the story. We did become bad. There is brokenness. There is sin. There is tragedy in the story. Jesus does fix that problem. But maybe it's more. Maybe along with fixing that problem, maybe along with this idea of forgiveness, maybe the, uh, beyond the idea that the cross brings forgiveness of sin, maybe there is also this beautiful truth that that Genesis story that we begin with maybe he begins to restore that for us as well. 
I would suggest we've been told that the Bible starts in Genesis chapter three and finishes somewhere around the end of the gospel narratives. And yet the truth is the full thing starts in Genesis one, made to be co-creators, fallen, broken, yes, but now restored by this incredible Jesus who, who, of, Paul, of whom Paul says this, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We come to this table today and we celebrate the idea of death and resurrection. We recognise that Jesus gave his body and his blood. But the truth is the big picture of this is that it isn't just about forgiveness of sins. This is about God not giving up on this world, reconciling it, restoring it, bringing about this old story and creating it as a new story. That's the full picture of everything that we're seeing happening. And maybe when they ask the question, what do you want? Maybe the answer is, I long because it's in my nature to be a co-creator. And perhaps you've been told somewhere that the valuable people and the valuable jobs are people that work in church. And if you do something outside of that, your job is to make as much money as you can and contribute money to the church. And that's your function. And yet when you think about this Genesis picture, it feels like there's almost nothing that you can't do and partner well with God in it and bring life to this creation. It seems like in this story, it is so much less about what you do and so much more about how you do it. It seems there are so many things that you could partner with God in as a co-creator and bring stewardship and life to this world. That seems to be our story. And it brings us back to that question, what do I want? What do I want? When, you, when discontent starts to circle, when the roadrunner coyote scenario starts to sort of raise itself in your mind, when you start to ask yourself questions about is there a better story, some questions we can ask ourselves might be these. What do I want? What do I want for those around me? Where do I experience discontent? What need or suspicion is behind that? And then this question I love, whose story is central in my preferred future. When you imagine what this other story might look like, when you imagine where it might go, when you, like my five-year-old at the time daughter, begin to sketch out your life plan, the question I might ask is, who stays central in that story? Because for Adam and Eve, the suggestion was, you can be the center. You can be the, you can be the thing that matters. And that was never, ever our place. You were made to be a co-creator in God's great story. And when you do that, there is almost, again, nothing that you can't do well. Any business, any way that you operate in the world, any way of living can bring life to this world, whether you are staying at home with kids, homeschooling, whether you are uh, doing something with employees and building a company. There are so many things that it seems like we can participate in well. Just let your imagination go and you can create with the God of the universe as a co-creator. And on the downside, there's almost nothing that we can't do badly if we make ourselves the centre. St. Augustine, this writer from the fourth century, said this, our heart is restless until it rests in you. I wish he'd continued that just a little bit because I feel like this is what I would have said. Our heart is restless until it rests in you and your story. 
God has made himself almost inseparable from his great story. He has created this world and he has incredibly entered into the story himself as a character within it. In the midst of a world that became broken, he says, I am not giving up on this thing. How easy to say, I'm just gonna create something new. But how much more life-giving to say, I'm going to take the thing that was broken and I, I will reconcile all things. You were made to be a co-creator with the God of the universe. And the incredible message of Jesus is you still, you still can. You still can. So when we come to this table, we come with a few different things in mind. We come remembering that Jesus invited to do it, us to do it in remembrance of him. He invited us to come and take bread and remember his body broken for us. He invited us to take wine, grape juice, and remember his blood shed for the sins of the world. He also invited us to repeatedly re-enter his great story, to come and remind ourselves that this is about the reconciliation of all things. And that is a great story to be a part of. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.